thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we answer questions we found on the engineering subreddit, as well as ask a few of our own. Along the way, we cover destroying inedible eggs, making metal matches, and suffering from analysis paralysis. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 105, Reddit Questions 3, March 31st, 2016. So, Jeff, are there any questions you wish somebody would just ask you? Well, sure. I've long wished that somebody would come up to me and say, hey, Jeff, do you think you could do some consulting for us for, say, $2,500 an hour? That sounds like a really good question to have somebody ask. I, I think so. And I, I would look at them and I would say, well, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the field. I think that we need to, uh, to bump that up a little bit, you know, maybe $2,600. Maybe we can do something. With a per diem. With a per, oh, that's very good, Brian. Yeah, you got to put expenses on top of that too. Right, mm-hmm. travel. Mm-hmm. And, and any uh, limit on the number of hours per day or a max per day, or do we just go per hour? Oh, yeah, just per hour. Well, you know, or because, some, so, because some people will say, if, if I do three hours of consulting for you, I'm going to charge you for an eight-hour day. I mean, if you round, you know, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Jeff, that's why you need to be on retainer. Nobody in this town works with uh, – Everyone in this town works in a retainer. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I got that quote wrong. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, sure, if if somebody would ask me, "Hey, do you want to work for twenty five hundred bucks at twenty five hundred bucks an hour?" I'd like that question. But I never get that question. No, no, me neither. I'm actually not sure very many people get that question at all. Well, there was an article by the IEEE in 2004 talking about consulting engineers and they had 22% the, the the sort of peak of their curve they had a bin here where they were dividing up the dollars per hour and $50 segments and it looks like that uh, or $25 segments between 100 and $124 an hour was the peak with 22% of the consultants getting that in 2004 with half a percent getting more than $400 an hour I think if you want $2,500 an hour, you'll have to be hunted for sport. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a, there's a 2015 IEEE. Well, it's, it's the 2014 consultants fee survey report. And they say that the median hourly rate remains at $135 an hour. Uh, less than one respondent in five, 18% reported charging $200 or more an hour. Damn. I would like that. <laughs> well, it, but yeah, so remember that the number of hours as a consultant, the number of hours you can charge per week is going to be less than 40, right? You, you have to spend time, you know, filing taxes, rounding up business. Yes. And that, that $200 an hour doesn't just go into your pockets either. That's goes to the business, your health insurance, yada, yada. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, you got to pay for your software licenses and uh, pay for an office space. Paper, gas, right, security, mm-hmm. right. People who want to take your twenty five hundred dollars an hour, yeah. 
Uh-huh. So, so sort of the general, you know, without any other factors in mind, starting point is to figure you can, if you're good, you can work about a thousand, you can bill a thousand hours a year. Now that's, so that's sort of half time. Now, if you're the type that works a lot of hours, you may be able to, to raise that. And once you've got some repeat business going, then it's likely that you can do better than uh, 50% of your time uh, billable. Um, there's uh, many law firms where it seems that 100% of their time is billable, and I've never quite figured out how they do that, but that's a whole different issue. They work issue. more than 100% of the time. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> that's how it does it, but but uh, all I know is dealing, if, if the word lawyer is spoken, then all of a sudden everything gets very expensive very quickly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, that's a that was a, a question I'd like to be asked, but... You know, when when we here on the Engineering Commons need some questions that we can answer, where do we turn? Well, Reddit. Of course. Reddit. Yes. I got to take a break from my work day, and that's stressing me out to just look at Reddit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so that's what we're going to do in this episode. Yes. This is Reddit questions number three. Da-da-da-da. Uh, yes. All right. So who wants to uh, offer up an opening question? I think we should definitely go with, can you help me destroy 15,000 U.S. gallons of eggs per week? <laughs> well, didn't this okay. guy have, like, legit reason, though? Like, it wasn't just a, like, half-assed question. He actually needed it for his business. Can you define destroy? Well, I, I, uh, that's a good question. I'm seeing a long conveyor screw, and, oh, this is just ending badly. <laughs> Um, so answers, how do you destroy 15,000 U S gallons of eggs per week? Most creative solution go. Well, a lot of things, right. You incinerate them. I don't know exactly what temperature you have to get up to for the, uh, the, I, I assume these are eggs in shell. That's not very creative, Jeff. Well, if we're going to, if we're <laughs> going to be on the Reddit bandwagon this week, uh, you put them in a giant hydraulic press. That's creative. I was going to go with throw them at presidential candidates. <laughs> Start passing them out of rallies and primaries. <laughs> well, if we're going to do that, then let's just make a lot of egg salad and, you know, pass those out to people. Ooh. That's not really destroying it, though. No. That's cooking it. You're sidestepping or the question. Poison it, or poisoning people. Well, it depends on how bad your, <laughs> how bad your egg salad Well, now we're getting future creep. Are we destroying eggs or are we getting poison? I don't know. I don't know. Let's get Bob Schmidt back here. He can teach us how to avoid this feature creep. So, so again, I don't understand why is it, how is it this person has this many eggs and why do they <laughs> want to destroy them? One would think it's, it's, it's economically inefficient to do this. I don't know. I think they are inedible eggs from chicken ranches. And they are trying to mechanize the method by which they are getting rid of the eggs. Again, I go back to incinerate. Seems like a lot easier. Shoot them into space. That seems like the expensive solution, but yeah, at least it's, it's a start. <laughs> yeah, I was right the first time when we we started this damn question. Yeah, he gets eggs from chicken ranches and he has to get rid of them. He has got to process them. So, all right, well, we got a solution. So now, do you fire them into space and let them burn up on the way out of the atmosphere, or do you get them into space in a space capsule and then let them loose and let them? disintegrate as they re-enter the atmosphere. I think that's half a, that's a six of one, half a dozen of another. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I like is as ridiculous of a question as this is, there there are actually legitimate answers that people, you know, like one guy processed chicken parts, but not actual eggs. 
but you know processed a lot of other things and offered very good s- suggestions. Um, it's just it's crazy the kind of people you meet on Reddit. All right. So next question, who's got that one? <laughs> we did such a good job on chicken eggs. <laughs> All right. I, I got one. It was posted on r slash engineering. And it was, what is the best less than 30-minute video you've ever seen that explains an engineering technology or concept? And it's just a great way to get lost in a lot of really good videos. Uh, one kind soul even put them all in a nice YouTube playlist so you can just click it and go and pretend mm-hmm. to pay attention during your work meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, you know, they list, list a few cool channels. There's one about a computer made out of dominoes. Um, lots of ones about how different parts of the car work. Um, ooh, our favorite, the Turbo Encabulator by Rockwell Automation made it on there. Fantastic. Is the rocket guidance one on there? The rocket doesn't. The rocket knows where it is because the rocket knows where it isn't. If it is, I'm not going to read through this entire list and figure it out. Oh, it's amazing. I I think it's a audio recording that somehow is supposed to describe the Polaris or early Hawk navigation system or guidance system, and it's somebody describing a closed loop control system that to somebody who has no idea what it is. <laughs> So if you think about it, the rocket knows where it is because it knows where it isn't is kind of a verbal description of an error function. Yes. And it kind of goes downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, it's got the basics of a PID loop there. You know, it knows where it isn't. It isn't where you told it to be. So it's got to correct in that direction. Nope. I went too and, far. And I think that's – Shoot and back. I think it follows up – it follows up with like – and the rocket goes from where it isn't to where it is. <laughs> I, I don't know if that necessarily explains it then, but. Yeah, I think we linked to that in a previous episode. So if I'm able to, I will I will put a link in the show notes to that video or audio, whatever it was. Yeah, in all seriousness, uh, the, I was re-listening to a great RSA uh, animate on uh, – I think if you look it up, it's and we'll put it in the show notes. It's RSA animate motivation or what motivates us. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen that? I don't think I have. No, maybe, but I don't remember it. It's my jumping off point on why I think uh, STEM is a useless pursuit, but it's it's getting into the fact that uh, people who get into you know engineering or any kind of knowledge work whatsoever aren't actually motivated by money. And that when you try to incentivize them with money, you don't get enhanced outcomes. Oh, that. Yeah. It's. Yeah. yeah. It's sounding more familiar now. So, so is this going back to the, the whole Daniel Pink thing of, of we're after autonomy and mastery and purpose. It might've been, is he the one who was giving the talk? That sounds about right. Well, this is, I mean, it kind of sounds like uh, his his big thing was uh, from his book yeah. Drive was that the the elements of motivation were autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and that you know money was you know it, well all the studies show that money is a temporary thing that that yes once you get beyond the fact that you have enough money to you know have a place to live and and have food to eat uh, yep, that, that was then it only it was it was Daniel Pink's talk okay you got it Jeff but hey all right. <laughs> We, have we just been doing this show too long? There's no new topics. <laughs> just like Reddit, we're always reposting. <laughs> well, it, it's it, it's a good 
it's a good primer on on what actually does drive us as technical professionals. I, I don't know if you found yourself agreeing with Daniel Pink's thesis, Jeff. Oh, sure. I, I so I've I've always been a, a believer that the uh, you know sort of the standard managerial approach of, you know, sort of beat on the people until they do it faster and better was, was not particularly good. But, but then again, the other problem was if you just let people do whatever the heck they wanted to, you know, that was sort of like hurting cats. You never, that wasn't exactly a guarantee that you were going to get what you wanted either. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that Mr. Pink, you know, makes, makes some sense. Certain, certainly people want autonomy. They want some independence, but you can't give them total independence. You know, everybody has to sort of row in the same direction. You know, people want uh, mastery. They want to, you know, get good at something that, you know, we, we all like to uh, challenge ourselves and get good. That, that sounds right. Uh, the fact you have some purpose, I think is very important. It goes back to uh, Simon Sinek, uh, who talks about uh, the why, the whys and the hows and the whats, you know, but we're really driven by the why, you know, it's not what we do, but it's why we do it that, that uh, appeals to us. That's really, you know, is talking about purpose. So, yeah, it, it it makes sense. I I just think that uh, any anybody who comes along and says, "Well, I I have the magic formula, and this is exactly what you have to do, and it will work in all cases," is you know is just trying to blow a little smoke because mm-hmm. it, it it varies depending on the situation and the people and the and the problem at hand and what needs to be done and and the you know the rigor of of the uh, the analysis and the technology involved. You know, it all varies uh, exactly what's going to make a team work really well. Looking through this list of uh, Reddit videos here, I see uh, one that's kind of interesting. I'm definitely going to check out next time I get a free minute. The Engineer Guy channel, um, he has a link on a machine that does mechanical Fourier transforms, which is pretty damn cool in my opinion. Mechanical? Yes. Like it. That's neat. Yeah. Without watching this video live on air, uh, <laughs> it is Albert Mickelson's Harmonic Analyzer. And there are four videos that look to be you know, five minutes wow. each or so, yeah. Was Mickelson a physicist or an engineer? I couldn't tell you. I'd heard that name before just now. Jeff? Don't know. Maybe there's no difference in this case. It was back in the day where you could just be a renaissance man. Uh, Mickelson is, was a famous experimentalist or experimental physics physicist. But... uh I always get the impression he was more of an engineer than a physicist. And then, so he, I was going to say, I think we've we've mentioned this guy's channel before, but uh, AVE on YouTube. Um, a lot of people mentioned his tool reviews, and he's it's really a hysterical channel. If you guys haven't checked it out, you definitely should. Um, you know, he'll do teardowns of various power tools, and he he I don't know if he's a plastics guy or something, and you know, machining and machine design, but he, he knows his stuff and he, he dabbles in electrical a little bit too. And it, it's just really cool seeing him tear down, you know, just a common drill that I can go out and buy tomorrow and just tell you what sort of plastics are in it, why it's a cheap cost cutting idea or why it's a good idea. And sometimes he finds surprises even in the cheapest tools. Um, just, you know, the way they've geared things or how they implemented a certain function. And it, it's pretty cool. Any, any curses too. So wear headphones at work. <laughs> yeah i came across a a reddit question that was about your favorite youtube video channels most of them i hadn't seen before i mean i i knew about uh eev blog and, and uh, that but but 
I started sort of clicking through these and saying, well, are there any of these that I really like? And, and, you know, sure enough, all of a sudden 45 minutes had passed and I hadn't gotten anything done except watch all these <laughs> interesting videos. Hey, that works. The, the one, the one I remember is a guy making, uh, metal matches. He went out and machined <laughs> little squares of aluminum and, and, uh, tipped them with the, the chemicals to make matches and, and even machined his own little box to put them in. And I thought, and it was fascinating, right? I spent 15 minutes watching this. And when I was done, it's like, why did I do that? <laughs> did they work? You know, at the end of the video, it, you never saw them work. Don't. This isn't the whole point of a match to burn. Well, I think the point was that he could machine all this stuff. He was very, seemed very uh, competent with the, uh, the machine tools. Oh, Okay, right. so I got a question for you guys. Okay. Why don't engineering vendors offer list prices on their websites? Ooh, that's a good one. Can I take this one? Go ahead. Go ahead. Because they want to differentiate their pricing. That is, they don't want to be, if they have a, a, a product that they want to sell for about $100, they don't want to be selling it for $100 to everyone. To people that can afford more or willing to pay more, they'd like to be able to differentiate and sell sell the same product for $200 to them. And if they need to, to make the sale on some other, you know, other, other to other, some other client, uh, they might take the price down to 75. But if they, if they say it's a hundred dollars on the website, then they have to sell it for a hundred dollars to everybody. And they have determined they can optimize their profits by not revealing what their pricing structure is. Mm -hmm. Now to a, to a generation of people who were used to clicking on things on the internet and ordering over the internet, this has to be well. I know because I now order so much thing, so much, so much stuff through Amazon. But you know, this is the way it used to be done. You couldn't. There were no prices in any catalogs ever. You had to call the salesperson or the rep and get a quote. You had to get a quote for every damn thing you wanted to buy. Yes, and then you just end up on mailing lists. <laughs> so I have to clean out my deleted email like twice a week because it just fills up and takes up my inbox space. You know, my mailbox space because so many people spam me. Right. That's why you just got to have a uh, email account called vendor no read at workplace.com. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned before I sign up using Gorilla Mail if I can. The, uh, you know, the faux email mm-hmm. address that only lasts for a few hours just to download a, a white paper or some drivers or something. But occasionally I do need to, you know, use my actual work email. But even though you uncheck all the boxes, they still somehow get you with an invisible one that says, yeah, sure, send me whatever you want. So in some point in time, this was effective, right? Because people do check their email. At least people used to check their email. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that younger engineers check their email less often than those of us who are older. But email tends to get checked. Uh, so people keep sending stuff. But at some point, right, the the effectiveness wears off if 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 you just consider everything in your box to be spammed, then then nothing gets through, and all the vendors in the world can send you all the emails they want to, with all the promises that they care to make. But you're you're never checking it. What does it matter? So at some point, does this just die out as a form of advertising? No, because it's too easy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if they get one customer or one additional sale for the cost of those, you know, robo emails. The robo emails cost next to nothing. Yeah, but isn't this isn't this why we still have spam? Yeah, because well, how else am I going to get my penis enlargement pills? <laughs> right, <laughs> or your retro encabulators? <laughs> yes. 
or find out about all of the great offers from certain princes. Right. Well, I mean, those princes have to figure out ways to get their money out of their country. Yes. Do you guys actually sign up for any websites like newsletter or anything like that? Do you actually read the newsletters that they email to you? No. I don't either. No. No. I I, I sign up. I used to sign up like from you know various IC companies thinking like, oh, man, I'll just keep up on what new products there are. Yeah, that lasted half a week, and then they were just spam, and I unsubscribed. I mean, but so this is an area that is kind of fascinating to me is how do engineering or technical firms, let's just don't have to be engineering, but technical firms, how do they advertise their, their product anymore, right? We're not reading, we're not reading the emails. We, you know, they, they'll try to do like a, a webcast or something and no one signs up and does that. You know, are we left to where the only, the only place that ever, anybody can advertise this stuff is on Facebook? I mean, <laughs> Facebook sponsored LinkedIn posts. No, I think for the most part, I I would say I'm a high volume perpetual shopper of engineering wares. Ten percent of the time, it is somebody walked into my office with a solution that I didn't realize I would need, and maybe a year in the future, I or two years in the future, I realize I needed. Mm-hmm. So they came in to sell me connectors, but they also represented. You know, who's who's Bob Company that's making some random widget that oh now now I know it exists and yeah. I don't need it right now but it, I might need it in the future. Otherwise, just get getting really good at parametric searches and asking Google if something that you think might exist exists. Yeah, and then letting Google search, you know solve that problem for you. Yeah, the key is we've spoken before is finding the right keyword, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I know certain MOSFET should exist in certain packages. They're not showing up on DigiKey and Mauser, but that doesn't necessarily mean – I mean, not everyone is represented there. So looking for certain packages with certain performance search terms, and I'll find vendors that I didn't even know know existed. (laughs) Yeah. That that comes back to something I think we've mentioned before, that intelligence has kind of changed or the ability to do things is – changed a little bit from being able to know things to being able to find yeah. things. Yes. On the internet in particular. Yeah. <laughs> Just another way I've kind of found out about stuff is, um, you know, I'll contact vendors, whether it's for, you know, in, inductor samples or test equipment. And, you know, then they, they come into our office to drop those samples off. And maybe they sit down with all the apps engineers and they, tell us about the new products and that that's way more effective. I'd rather be able to ask direct questions to a technical sales guy or, you know, see the offerings live and then get spammed with email. You know, I get enough emails as mm-hmm. it is. I don't need more stuff in my inbox. I'd rather have a person there. That's definitely more effective to me anyways. And we just had, um, just bought a function generator for work with some pretty specific requirements so I evaluated a few different models, chose one, bought it, and that company put on a product fair uh, a couple of weeks after we bought it to see if there was anything else we might want. And well, our wish list is grown leaps and bounds, and that that is a really good uh, good way to get your products out there and into the minds mm-hmm. of engineers. So, am I the only one who pretty much is forced into the? Uh if I need to hire either an engineer or I need to buy something, 
uh, for work, I tell, I write down what I need and it gets sent out to publicly, basically, and they have to come to me. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You're the only one. Okay. Yeah. Is that, is that for like anything? Like if you need a couple of screws or like, uh, there's dollar limits. Okay. I think the numbers like, I think it's $10,000. We have to put it up for bids. Gotcha. Which is surprisingly easy to hit. Um, but less than that, I need so many quotes and less. I mean, at some point I can just like, if I need screws, yeah, okay. I can just go buy them. But you know, I, I'm assuming the analog to the things you guys are talking about are not cheap in my, my profession because nothing mm-hmm. is cheap in my profession. <laughs> well, I mean, I, when I need something in volume, I'll send it out for quote. I mean, yeah. We'll get quotes mm-hmm. too. We're looking to upgrade a lot of our lab equipment. So with the company that we think we might go with, um, you know, we, we've said like, look, this is the stuff we des- or definitely need. Uh, these are going to be some nice to haves. And this stuff is if Christmas comes early. So depending on what you do for these other two groups, you know, we can maybe talk about these items in the third list you'd really like to sell us. Adam, do you guys ever do uh, reverse auctions? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay. You know what those are? Uh, vaguely. I, I mean, I do, but okay. I don't remember, if that makes sense. You'll basically describe a project that you want done and people will submit blind offers. Oh. Blinded offers. Yeah. I mean, that's um, the way most of our – not our engineering technical services, but our um, – uh, that's the way all of our stuff works. We put it out for bids, oh, okay. and we get our bids back, and then we pick the bid that we want, uh, typically lowest. But and, can you see the people who are – can you see the names of the companies that are submitting the bid? Um, You mean me as the purchasing yeah. person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can see who submitted okay. them. Um, and for – depends on what the work is, like a construction project, um, there's something called the plan holder list which is public information. That's everybody who has bought a copy of the plan. Um, so not only me, but the other people bidding can see who has a copy and is potentially bidding at least. Um, so Brian, let me ask, I'm, I'm had not heard of reverse auction before, but I mean, so it's real common that you, you know, you ask for bids and people submit blind bids, but in reverse auction, do you not need to know what the other bids are? I'm looking it up. I, I've participated, but I want to make sure that I fully understand how it differentiates. I, I mean, it makes in a, in a forward auction, right? You're you're bidding the price up, and I would guess that in a reverse auction, you're bidding the price down. But in order to do that, you need to know what other people have bid. All right, because it's really clear. I'm just going to read the first line from the Wikipedia definition. Okay. A reverse auction is a type of an auction in which the roles of the buyer and seller are reversed. In an ordinary auction. Also known as a forward auction, buyers compete to obtain a good or service by offering increasingly higher bids. In a reverse auction, the sellers compete to obtain business from a buyer and prices will typically decrease as the sellers underbid each other. In that case, no, we don't do that. We just do bidding. Bids are submitted and we pick the one we... All the bids mm-hmm. are opened at once. Now, now, one of the approaches that was often used was... Uh, the company would go out for, so there'd be several rounds of bidding, right? 
So the company would go out and ask for 10 bids. God, you didn't want to be one of the, you know, you're, you, you knew when you got a wreck from, from certain companies, right? You were one of 10 bidding for this thing. Your, your, mm-hmm. your probability of getting the job went way down. So they'd, then they'd take the, the bottom three and they'd say, okay, here's the lowest of the bids. Uh, you need to come back and tell us how you're going to do it for 10% less than that. Yeah. I think the, I think the only thing that would, uh, you know, would differentiate what people would call a formalized reverse auction is, you know, I've seen it for capital equipment where, you know, people literally log into a website and submit bids Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's a lot more like for lack of a better description, like eBay, except in reverse and for like huge pieces of capital equipment. That must be the case then that everybody can see the 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 lowest bid. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong to anyone who does this for a living. I'm, I've I've only seen it once or twice, and it sounded like something that Adam might do. Or, <laughs> well, yeah, not Adam a, in particular, a, a government agency. Just, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I said I'm not familiar with it. That is very similar to the way bonds work, though. When, yes, when, that is true. When uh, governments do bonding, and I, this is something I'm only occasionally been i've only seen a little bit of it i don't not involved in this process but my understanding they put it out for the auction and people buy bids at at decreasing and we you they keep submitting and auctioning down the interest rate and Mm -hmm. then uh lowest interest rate rate wins i believe that's the way that works right well you know i figured you'd just use a good epoxy if you're going to do bonding Um, usually it's welding or bolts or, um, yeah, yeah, not, not very much epoxy really. Oh, well, okay. never mind. Sometimes we use epoxy for paint in my profession. Ah, okay. Not, not, not for, not for gluing the road back together. Not very often. <laughs> well, I say that and then I remember an instance where, yes, that is used. So, uh, I'll stop talking. Right. So, uh, Brian, I, since you go and you look for lots of parts online, mm-hmm. at least that was the impression I, w- I was taking from what you were saying, uh, is your frustration greater with the lack of pricing information online or the lack of technical information online? Rarely do I run into a circumstance where I, I'm lacking either. Okay. <laughs> um I, I, I just so often when I'm looking for parts and I look for stuff online, the they they offer a dozen very generic, you know, dimensions and technical stuff. And then all the all the important stuff, at least the important stuff to me, is never there online. You know, it's never listed and I've got to call to find out exactly, you know, what the you know, what the spec rating is or you know, what the torque limit is or just, you know, whatever it is. It's like you guys know it. It's right there in the catalog in front of you because you tell me when I call. Why is that not on your website? Yeah, no. I, I want to get I you on that spam in, list. <laughs> <laughs> I generally work in an area that's pretty well technically defined and also typically caught um, in terms of ICs, uh, passives. You know, you've got to explain cots for those who might not know. Commercial off the shelf. Uh, you know, I've had, the only thing I found infuriating recently has been, uh, uh, LED display modules Mm -hmm. are just, 
to source inside the U.S. for at a reasonable cost is just bonkers. Hmm. I'm, I'm like my third or fourth vendor. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually had one, like I thought we were ready to go to production, and I had one literally call me up when I wanted to get my volume quote and say, "Yeah, uh, yeah, they've totally backed out of the U.S." So, and I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a single replacement part that I can trust. So, right. sorry. Ooh. Yeah, it, it, it that that one's particularly brutal. But uh. well, I've got a, a slightly different situation that I run across um, where the way we have to bid our projects out, um, depending on what it is, like say LED lighting, um, we have a list of these are the pre-approved products, and the uh, contractor can bring any one of those that they want. So now I need to design to all of them. Um, and make sure any one of them will fit in my application because mm. I could get any one of them and I have no control over it. That seems horribly inefficient. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, usually it's not too big of a deal because we, we set the spec. It's when you're running on a spec that we haven't, or part of the spec we haven't specified is what I need to design off of. Yeah. You know, we'll say this is the light pattern it ha- must have. It must be on these voltages, but like, um, the amperage, which is an important design criteria, mm-hmm. um, that varies and isn't um, something that's just out there. So I can't just grab it. I got to go f- search through the whole list to pick it to figure out which one I could get. And and this is an area of costing that's that's interesting. Is that there are certain things that are very definite. You know, the cost of the item is known, but the cost of, for instance, it sounds like Adam in your case of integrating various pieces and parts from vendors that may have interactions that are unknown because you've never put this part with that part before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of a sudden there are, you know, days or weeks spent out in the field or, you know, calls that have to be addressed or, you know, uh, you know, costs that come up later. And those are the things that just never show up. And even as engineers, if we have an intuition or we've seen something like this in the past and we go, Hey, uh, purchasing, you may want to consider this, it's real hard to convince anybody to do anything unless you have hard numbers to go on. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, but, but at least my experience, but I never want to sit down and spend all the time it would take to go through all the combinations and, and, and dig up those costs. Right. Because I don't know which one might show up. And so uh, it's only in, in retrospect, you go, well, that was a bad idea. And everybody goes, yeah, that was a bad idea, but nobody does anything about it. Yeah. That, that's an interesting uh Anybody who writes a lot of specifications, um, that's um, one of the reasons that sometimes specifications read in very odd ways. And there are some, like, well, duh, type specs. You know, like the circular pipe shall be round. Um, I don't know if that's an actual spec. I'm I'm sure it is someplace. (laughs) (laughs) Because somebody. That's actually not descriptive, because isn't an oval round? Yes. Okay, circular pipe shall shall not be an oval, maybe. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. Well, I mean that one that very no, well. An oval may is be not a, a circle. Um, <laughs> you get the point. Some of these specs are well, just circular. Ridiculous. That seems like a bigger Venn diagram. Round pipe. Round pipe. Round pipe shall have a constant radius. Yeah, you should you should never see ish in a specification. Roundish. <laughs> 
Not a good specification. <laughs> All right. I liked this question. What is the worst piece of software you've ever been forced to use? Uh, so for, for me, at least, it was a in-house purchasing system. That's you too. enterprise software. <laughs> it was just a pain to use and took forever and uh, had no security, you know, and, and uh, you could see what everybody else was purchasing in every other department. And uh, it was ugly. Hey, Jeff, have you ever had to use uh, mainframe software? Oh, yes. This was mainframe software. Okay. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. It was just brutal. Any mainframe software which has made it into the the this century has probably been considered painful to use. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of it that still runs. I mean, a lot of the banks still run on mainframe software. They just they have just little nice little programs that sort of you know work their way out to our cell phones and tape drives and tape drives. <laughs> I think we are in the we're in the process of getting rid of our last mainframe. Mostly because the uh, physical piece of hardware is mm-hmm. um, out of warranty and parts are no longer manufactured. <laughs> Wasn't it out of warranty before I was born? You know, um, probably they could they could probably buy service contracts up to a point, yeah. and probably IBM yeah. or whoever at some point said enough. <laughs> we, we can't charge enough to save this. Everyone has retired. Yeah. Well, that's that too. Yeah. Well, at one point back in the 70s or 80s, somebody sold them. Well, this computer will last you for 50 years. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're getting surprised that, oh, well, we need a new one. Hey, there's st- there are still jobs for COBOL programmers. Yep. Isn't that mostly in banking? That's a, that's a lot of business applications. Oh, I think my worst piece of software I used. Did I, I mention the uh, schematic capture software in the past that uh, when you connected two schematic lines up, it would ask you which one of the schematic names you wanted to use? Mm-hmm. I, have I mentioned that? Yeah. Oh, At yeah. least off the air. Yeah, that's – if case I hadn't mentioned on the air, it was – so you'd have – 24 volts in ground and it would be like which one oh i see you've connected these two up which which designation would you like to use 24 volts in ground and you select one or the other and then it would go and rename all of your nets to whichever one you selected which wouldn't sounds like it wasn't a big deal but even after you split the nets and started deleting them it would still retain its net name Mm mm-hmm and then it'd be like you delete all the nets, but there'd still be because of the little snap to on the crappy piece of CAD software. There'd be like a little tiny one pixel net left there. So you get redone doing all your schematics and oh, it looks like you've connected two nets together. <laughs> oh. But you do not have to use that anymore. Is that correct? No, uh, not for the past eight years. Very good. That sounds like a wonderful handy feature somebody installed in that piece of software. Yes. Trying to make your life easier. <laughs> Increase the engineering time required for every project. Well, so I was asking you, Brian, earlier about whether you got enough technical information off the web. And uh, so that sort of rolls around to another question I saw. And that is, let's, let's assume you do have sufficient technical information. You have all the technical information you need. 
Now, the question is, do you ever suffer from analysis paralysis? I hate that phrase. Well, do you have a better phrase for it? You haven't tried running an experiment yet? Mm. That's what I would say is you just pick something. It probably doesn't work is basically the answer to that. The answer, whatever you're thinking probably doesn't work. Don't assume it does. Try it and then verify that it doesn't work and move on to your next solution. Yeah. So, but okay. So but you've, you've fixed it, but there are certainly always the case where uh, let's, let's, you have a vehicle, right? And you want to know exactly how much torque you need from your motors in order to drive the vehicle, this type of thing. And you can ballpark it and get pretty, pretty close, or at least in, you know, a, a, an order of magnitude. And now you have to worry, okay, so now you have to start thinking about, well, exactly what accelerations do you have? And what's, what's the friction between the tires and the ground? And, and, you know, how big are the tires? And exactly what's the gearing? And, and now you start getting into all these things, and you can spend uh, days, weeks, months doing all the analysis. The, the question is, where do, you, where do you cut it off? And so, and so I think you're right. I mean, I think the answer is at some point you just do an experiment. You say, well, let's get a motor. Let's, let's set it up. Let's see what we get and, and, you know, dial ourselves in instead of spending days and weeks doing the, the calculations, doing it from a purely mm-hmm. theoretical standpoint. But I, I think it's a, I think it's a genuine problem. I think it's hard for, especially for young engineers who don't know, you know, what to expect from, from a, a complex system to know where you say, well, let's, let's go buy parts. Cause now you worry, well, I'm spending the company's money and I'm not even sure if it's going to work. Yeah. And I think and it, clearly this depends on where you work. I mean, there's a big difference between cutting a circuit board and building, say a bridge, you know, a nuclear, a nuclear reactor or a bridge. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> hitting compiles a little bit more expensive with a bridge. Yes. Um, <laughs> From my point of view, definitely early in my career, there was a lot of concern about spending money on prototypes. Ooh, you know, I'm about to spend a thousand dollars on a board, or you know, or five thousand dollars. You know, and then when you actually look at how much it costs to employ me over the period that I spent thinking about that, you know, the cost of prototype boards and multiple prototype boards is nothing compared to the cost of employing an engineer. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not always true, but generally it is. Um, right. So that's something that I had to, and very quickly got over as it became very clear to me that, and I, you know, even though I'm in a much more cost sensitive role right now, it's, it's still time is much more valuable than the money on prototypes and mm-hmm. prototype hardware. Yeah. You, you know, I, I think uh, you, you made a point there when you started your career. I think that there's a certain amount of, a certain amount of that comes out of engineering school. Where mm-hmm. you're so used to, to doing the math and calculating all this out. Um, and with a little, between a little bit of uh, experience, you know, the gut feel and some understanding of, you know, look, my time is expensive. You either get to the point where in my profession, you've got a pretty good idea what the answer is going to be. And so you can narrow it down to maybe one that you just have to prove what the number is and prove it over something else. Cause you know how it's going to wash out. 
mm-hmm. or you realize, hey, it's not worth it. Let's just spin a prototype. Yeah. Um, now, I will say that there is a like asteroids. There's the point where this comes out the other side, where it's actually you know it does behoove you to spend as much time to- as much time as you can doing the modeling, doing the math, and that's where if you do an experiment, you you have a good chance of destroying a test article. Um, that presumably beyond the money that it took to assemble it also took a fair amount of engineering and technician time to, you know, get everything ready to go. Yeah. And, and we've, we've talked about this before that, that one of the critical abilities is not calculating an exact answer, but calculating the bound. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you, it's not so important that you find exactly what, you know, what, you know, what kind of load the bridge will take, but you make sure that whatever it will take is at least one pound greater than whatever load it might actually see in its lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's all about understanding in your situation, what the appropriate level of analysis is. Mm-hmm. And like, well, like we mentioned designing a bridge, that number is a lot higher than making a $2 widget. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You generally only get to send, you know, 100,000 amps to your part once. Mm-hmm. So you better have a decent idea as to what's going to happen when you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say that, that this uh, comes up sometimes when we go, what is, what is the company thinking uh, because of where the money comes from? And so mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's in charge of a project may have the dollars coming directly out of their budget or whatever parts you, whatever prototype parts you order or spend or test or whatever you're doing. But your time comes out of somebody else's budget. Suddenly your time is of no consequence and they think nothing of having you work weekends for seven months in a row in order to get this thing done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so if I just encourage those, if, if you think that they're, uh, Decisions are being made for uh, no reason or or illogical reasons. Uh, turn to uh, the typical culprits: uh, power and money, or sometimes it's regulatory, or that too. That too. Well, so that brings up. So let me pose another question. Uh, if uh, obviously Brian has never suffered from analysis paralysis. No, I have. I just. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I have. It's just it's been beaten out of me so so effectively. I can't even remember what it feels like. Right. Okay. So, so the the question then is, uh, what is good enough? Ooh. Yeah. Good. Good enough. Also, you know, plays into knowing your specs too. <clears throat> you know, do do I have to have this widget balanced to the microgram, or you know, is knowing Within yeah. 100 grams, good enough. And, and that's a thing. I, at least for me, as a young engineer, that was really tough. Where a, a boss would say, "Well, it, it, you know, whatever it was, it had to be within, let's say, a milligram." And you know, I'd get, I'd get 1.5 milligrams, and I would, I would keep cranking away, trying to get it underneath a milligram. Right? I was close, but I wasn't there. And that's not always what they want. You know, if you know, if you're in the ballpark, they need to know that. And and do not they're not happy when you spend another week and a half, uh, and you know order more expensive parts that kind of stuff. Trying to, I, I guess what I'm saying is the spec is not always written uh, with 
with infinite knowledge, right? A lot of times the spec, especially a product spec is written with, well, we think this is kind of what the customer wants. We don't know for sure. We have to write down something. So let's go with this. Truer, uh, and, truer and, than and, I'd like to admit. <laughs> and, and so you, as a, as you know, until you have a little uh, a feel for it, you know, you have enough experience to work up that feel. Don't interpret that too literally. You know, if you think you're in the ballpark, go talk to your boss or talk to another engineer about it and see if that's good enough. Yeah, some specs are firm. Some specs are good um, targets. Yeah, it, it's knowing your spec. It's also knowing your tools too. Um, Using an example from my line of work, um, I take a lot of efficiency curves of regulator regu- uh, switching regulators, mm-hmm. and I, I don't need to measure. You know, the efficiency is the output power divided by the input power times a hundred. Well, power is current times voltage, and do I need to know the voltage to a microvolt and the current to a nanoamp? Not in the slightest, because the efficiency is going to change by less than a milliperson if I do all that. <laughs> and right. it's, it, I'm, I can't even measure that well, um, you know, reliably. Now, if I'm taking something like shutdown current, you know, where we have to say like it's less than 20 microamps, well, yes, then I have to worry about the microamps. But when you're taking efficiency and the load current's 15 amps and, you know, you're measuring watts of power, yeah, you could you could lose a couple microwatts here and there or milliwatts here and there, and it's not going to change your efficiency percentage too much. It'll be 89 or 89.1 or, you know, and it, it doesn't make a huge difference when you're you're selling that to the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, gener- generally if they have to hit over 90% or something and you come in at 89, it might be close enough unless they're a real stickler. But if you come in at... 80 or 80.2 well they don't care that's still well below 90 (laughs) right Right. so knowing what i can and cannot measure easily enough um you know determines to what good enough is as well yeah yeah i think this all comes back to uh it depends yes our favorite phrase here yep um you know another example um i was at a class we were taking uh talking about uh designing sign panels and somebody wanted the precision to a thousandth of an inch on a 10 f- or 15 foot tall sign panel. Okay. But it's a friction that, fit. That matters. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that thousandth of an inch is imperceptible when you're standing next to it, let alone a hundred feet away. Did, did they specify a temp- temperature to the millikelvin with which the measurement would be made? I, the computer would give it to you. That's I mean, that's kind of where I think that they. Um, Is I, the I sign think it was close to the of speed of light when it's being measured? Because you know that that might change the measurement length as well. <laughs> Definitely could. But, right at well, the same it, time, it, that's a lot closer to a reasonable tolerance on the structure. Maybe not quite that mm-hmm. precise, but um, a tenth. A tenth of a what? Inch. At what temperature? Because that matters. At a tenth of an inch. Um, I- I'm kidding. Well, a couple of tenths. <laughs> <laughs> well, wouldn't that also depend on the manufacturing process too? Like if they had, you know, they could get it a hundred feet plus or minus a thousandth of an inch. What doesn't matter then if you spec it. <laughs> It, it, it doesn't matter anyway, though. Yeah, but I mean, if it costs you nothing extra to get that precision, you may as well use it. 
more to the point, just tell them you did it because <laughs> there's no way they could measure it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like I said, it, it's it's you know, good. Let me, get out my interf- let me get out my simultaneous interferometer time of flight measurement device and. <laughs> Yeah. So, so there's another point in there, I think, and that is, even if something's not in the spec, I've I've gotten caught up in trying to refine refine a concept either numerically, especially if I'm playing numbers. I guess this goes back to analysis paralysis, where you play with the numbers and you go, oh, I can move this up just a hair, and I move this a, a half a thousandth, and I tweak this just, and so I get the you know, so the torque comes out to be exactly forty inch pounds. Now. Why it has to be 40 inch pounds, I don't know, but you know, I'm close enough and I'm thinking, well, I should I just want 40. It's my own little, you know, OCD, you know, I, I can, I can get it to be right at that number. And so <clears throat> I've, I've made the calculations more complex than they need to be, or, or made the system low, less robust, or even if it's perfectly fine, the, the problem then is, that, is I go to talk to anybody else and they suddenly make changes and all of a sudden the, the, you know, it goes to 41 or it goes to 39.7 and, and all that effort that I put into making it tweak just so uh, t- for my own emotional benefit is of no value to the company and, uh, you know, essentially time wasted uh, because somebody's going to make changes. So I guess, again, I would encourage those, if you're the type like I am, I guess I, I'm trying to re- be recovering about it, but uh, where you will spend lots of time playing with the numbers, trying to make things work out just so, uh, try to remember that you know, what the focus is that, that you, you want the thing to work, that nature does not care whether you have a uh, perfectly round number. Well, with the, the torque spec too, you might also want to shoot for 40 just from, uh, you know, knowing the uh, the technician or the machinist or whoever's going to be assembling this thing. You know, it, it's a lot easier to set your torque wrench to 40 than 39 or 41. Uh, so, you know, you lower, lower the probability of an error having a nice round number like that. And that, Carmen, I think is a very legitimate thing. I mean, I would always, if I had, say, a bolt pattern or something, I would make sure that, you know, the spacing of the bolts was all the same. Or or if I didn't need all the same size bolt, I would still design one side of the panel to be all the same size, just so that the uh, technician or whoever was doing the assembly would find it, uh, it would be less likely that they could. Uh, get the wrong bolt or the wrong part into the into the assembly. Yeah. Now, now you know more, obviously, way more about machine design than I do. If you do your numbers, is it like chip picking a resistor value where, like, for a pull up value, a pull up resistor value, you know, one k, one k, ten k, probably good enough for low speed stuff. Um, you know, if you do your calculations and it comes out saying you know you need thirty seven newtons of you know torque or you know newton meters of torque, can you? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just round that up to 40 and know the bolt will probably be fine? Or do you have to oh, go sure. lower then? No, no, no. I, well, I, it, it depends on what you're trying to do, right? So I, Of I, course, yeah. Caveat, yeah, you but, would never spec like an I2C pull-up at like 10K if you're trying to do something much faster and 10K would slow down your edges. But but there are a lot of times when you're just trying to hold on a, you know, a piece of paneling, sheet metal or something, and you know, a number 10 uh, screw will do. Mm-hmm. And and I don't really even need to do the calculation because there's no real force being exerted. And there are other times where, yes, there's some there's some uh, force being exerted somewhere on the panel or some component, and it takes let's say a quarter twenty thread. That that seems reasonable. Well, there may be other places where I don't need the the uh, cross sectional area of a quarter twenty thread. I can get I could get by with 
you know, a number 10 or number six, which are both threads that have smaller cross-sectional area. But I've already got, I need at least one, or I need several in order to make this part. And the cost difference, if at least in fairly low volumes, and the cost difference between the, the quarter 20 and a number 10 uh, is not you know, very insignificant. So why not just go ahead and put all the, make them all quarter 20s? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or if I have a spacing between the pattern and I need the spacing in some places, the spacing, you know, two inches between the bolts would be okay. In other places, uh, it'd be three inches between bolts. I may make the, pol- the pattern two inches all the way across so that the guy that's doing the machining knows that he has a regular pattern of two inches instead of it, you know, I've got three spaced at two inches and four spaced at three inches, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's wiggle room. Any kind of interesting design, there's always wiggle room, right? That's why we have humans, (laughs) not just computers doing all the design. Well, at least so far, you know, it's partly because engineering is to degree in art. It's not just numbers. It's how you go about the problem, how you approach it. So the other day on Reddit, I noticed uh, the student manual to the Art of Electronics third edition came out, and no one told me. And and so, why the student edition? How is that different? All right. So the Art of Electronics itself is um, it's not quite a textbook. It's a bit more of a, a reference sure. um, for anything electronics. And uh, you know, the second edition that is considered the Bible, you know, came out in was it the mid to late eighties and mm-hmm. they took them 30 years basically to update it right. and put out the third edition. And the third edition came out last fall, September, October, somewhere in there. And with it, they put out a student guide and the student guide is basically a learn at your own pace lab course uh, that goes along with the book. Mm. And it maybe gives you a brief overview of say transistor amplifiers and then, you know, some experiments to run. And it also references back to the main Art of Electronics book saying, you know, read this chapter uh, or this section of a chapter if you want to know more about how transistor amplifiers work or why we are doing this particular experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of complement each other. And this one's pretty nice. It has a section in the back that tells you which parts you need to buy, which, you know, which pieces of equipment would be nice to have. And I don't actually own these student manual yet, but I'm assuming it gives you, you know, if you only have this, do that. But I got to check out the preview a little more in detail. Hmm. Okay. And and so if you were to go through the student manual, would that, I mean, so what would that do for you? Uh, I mean, it's a good practical course in electronics. You know, you'd have a a broad to mid-level understanding of a a lot of topics, I would say. Okay. Um, You know, are you going to be able to design a 20 gigahertz, you know, Wi-Fi antenna? Well, you know, 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi antenna with the power amplifier and data converter at the transistor level? Yeah, no, probably not. But, you know, you could probably do just about any home home product or home project you have in mind and, you know, get a, a good understanding of a new new area of electrical engineering you might not know about too much. Like for me, it'd be digital design. Um, I'm using it to get a broad overview of various bus topics and, you know, how everything works. Right. So I remember seeing some of it in school and I'm using it more as a refresher than teach myself for the first time. Okay. And and so what's the uh, what's the calculus level? Uh, no calculus. 
it can't so they, be engineering without calculus, you know. Oh, this is yes. <laughs> you know, they they talk about uh, the math behind it all, and they they maybe will hint at you know there's some calculus involved here, and they'll they'll hand wave it away. It's why it's more of a reference than an actual textbook. Okay. Um, you know, I, if you want to really learn transistors and and how to model them, yeah, get Gray and Meyer or Johns and Martin or Ravizi or whatever his name is, and sit down and read through on the derivation of the Evers Bohr model and what have you. But if you just want to know what that is and, you know, how to apply it, then the art of electronics is more than sufficient. Okay. So you'll be able to do, you know, the, the, the back of the envelope math pretty good going through the art of electronics and the student manual, um, whether or not it's good for a first timer who knows absolutely nothing or someone who's dabbled before and wants to take it to the next level. Uh, that's up for debate. Right. Well, a lot of times that back of the envelope calculation is good enough, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, back to analysis paralysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll definitely be able to ballpark many different uh, many different uh, types of designs and at least get it working. Whether or not it's 100% optimized is another thing, but you'll at least know the terms to Google if you want to take it further. Which, as we've said, okay. is just as important as knowing the topic itself. <laughs> Seems to be. Yes. So I'm looking at the lab course and I'm thinking I want to get it, but I don't know when I'd actually have the time. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many books I've purchased and, and I don't know, so many lab courses. I've signed up for a few things, but it just, the, the time to get this stuff. Just I put a hard stop seems- on the books I buy because I just have a growing pile and I, I can't buy any more. I, I, I honestly, I had to cut myself off, and especially after midnight. Right, it used to be that I'd be I'd be looking at stuff, and my my uh, my willpower would go way down. You know, late at night, and all of a sudden, I'd be waking up a week later, going, "Did I really order this book?" And go back to Amazon. Sure enough, I'd ordered that. So I got enough. Uh, I got a stack of app notes and white papers. I I need to get around to reading that. Uh, you know, have been sitting there for yeah. months, let alone books. So, yeah, i see if my library has a copy of it so I can page through it for a weekend. But I, I'm happy just having the textbook personally. Right. Well, so let me uh, propose that as the final question here for our episode. Okay. And, and that is there are, you know, there are great reference books. Let's say the, the Art of Electronics. There are app notes. Uh, and and in every field of engineering, there's some sort of industrial vendors that are trying to provide information to you. There are there's all kinds of stuff on the web. You know, there's blogs, there's there's notes, there's uh, there's you know Facebook and Twitter and and got it. You know, forums and and wikis. And so, you know, I came from an era where information was very scarce. And so you held on to every little scrap of item in case someday you needed that item. And now that's counterproductive in the, in the same way that at one point, you know, elect- electronic designers would save every transistor. You know, you had six transistor radios and you, you, every transistor was precious because they were so expensive. And now you're a fool if you're not, you know, wasting transistors, just uh, using the powers of the chip as, as much as you can. So all that being said, how do you decide what to read, what to consume when there's just so much out there and you know you're never going to understand it all. 
I'm still a uh, a pretty big fan of printing things out when it comes to app notes and white papers. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've got a uh, mm-hmm. a nice big folder on my Dropbox that has a billion books and app notes and white papers that I'll probably never get around to reading and some ones that I referenced a fair amount. But, um, you know, if it's something work-related that I think I might need, I'll print it off, put it in a stack on my desk and leave it there until I get a free day and I'll page through it. You know, grab something off the stack, look through it, give it a once over, not too in depth, just kind of skimming. And, you know, I've thrown out, say, at least half of them just saying, oh, God, this is a, a terrible derivation to try and follow. I don't understand it, whatever. Rip it up and throw it away because there's 10 more like it in the pile and one of them's going to be better. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that I have come to that conclusion, too, is that there, you know, there are certain authors who are who explain things in a certain way that make it easy for me to understand and that doesn't mean it makes it easy for everybody else to understand but you know certain writers think the same way I do and so I understand their things and, and some don't and there have been those papers that everybody say uh, that others say this is very important and it, it speaks to me and I will read it and I will reread it uh, and I will struggle to understand it and occasionally it becomes mm-hmm. clear but usually it doesn't uh, that if that if on a first reading it just doesn't I'm not getting it then uh, usually I mean there's sometimes where it's just technical and you need to buckle down to get through it but I've come to the conclusion there's so much information out there in the world there's so much so little time to do the reading and understand that I might as well just go if I if I glance through it and it's not making any sense I move on there's just not enough time to figure out every single author's uh, yeah. mysterious writings. Yeah, I've also taken to um, checking the references in the bibliography as well, mm-hmm. um, because you know certain topics like every IC company has, you know, an app note or a white paper on picking bypass caps and why you want to do that and how to do that and such, and you know, a lot of them are just lazy and kind of poorly written. And then you'll look at the references and you'll call one or two of them up, and you'll notice that this one basically. Mm-hmm. Not plagiarized, but essentially just copied. <laughs> right. I mean, there's only so many new things you could write about picking bypass caps, but they they just lazily copied what was in a previous app note from another company and did it worse. So, yeah, sure, shred this one by company X and go to company A, who wrote the original one that's three times as long, but twice as clear. Yeah. Uh, and just Are they sharing a common source? Yeah, exactly. Just checking that. Or, no, for some of them, just... You know, uh, DVDT and do shoot through and MOSFETs. Like, there's half a dozen app notes I found on it, and only one of them was any good because it took the time to actually explain its derivations and why it happens. And, you know, like I, I was looking at one equation, you know, equation 13 to equation 14 from one company's app note, and I was like, there is absolutely no way that you get from there to there in one step. And it, it turns out you can. It's like, one step and a half a step, but right. just the way the other app note that they stole from explained it, it uh, mm-hmm. it made way more sense. Right. So you can guess which app note I kept. Yeah, but it, but that's always uh, it, it depends on where you are on your learning curve, and and I mean that was one thing when I was trying to write academic papers, I was always getting chided for putting in too much information. I was trying to explain every single step, and and my advisor kept going. 
look, Jeff, you know, the people that are reading this understand all this. You're learning it. Yes. But you don't have to tell them how it's done. They already know. Uh, just, <laughs> you know, go from point A to point B. They will know how you got there. Uh, but my but my thinking was always, yes, I've been reading those papers, right, that these guys write, and I do not understand a damn thing they're saying. And I need this, you know, mm-hmm. step A, step B, you know, all the steps of the derivation to get me from point A to point B because I'm thinking about the guy behind me that's, you know, is coming up. And, yeah, it's going to be his first time. Yeah, going exactly. But, of course, you know, the papers have like an eight-page eight, eight page limit, and you want to get it all in, and you eventually go, oh, screw it, I'll – I'll go ahead and make the jump from A to B and let someone else figure it out. And, you know, you, know, you, you gotta, you, you gotta start doing like uh, DVDs and movies, just have a director's cut and author's <laughs> cut. <laughs> yeah. Academic papers are, that's the problem. They're written for academics. Uh, that they are. Which is why they're supposed to be app notes. But then, you know, some app note was just written because someone was told you have to, we, we need company X has an app note on bypass caps. So we need one too. Okay. Well, Let's just reword company X's app note. Um, but to get back to your original question, Jeff, I'm at the point that I, um, if it's taking me too long to figure it out from reading, yeah, I'm either calling the author slash or CO expert mm-hmm. or some other expert at, say, Federal Highways or something, and I want to get somebody on the phone because I need somebody to explain this to me again, and, and usually I don't have too much trouble doing that at this point. I mean, if after spending several hours trying to figure it out or an hour or two figuring it out, usually it's only a little piece I need, but mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you, you don't, you don't want to be calling people up and saying, Hey, I I've done no work. Tell me, teach me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but, but you're right. It's, it's surprising how often it's just the one little nugget, right? That, that, yep. that you, you're almost there, but you don't understand this view or the, or this, uh, you know, how this part works or this, this derivation you've never heard of. And they, you know, they found it in their textbook from 50 years ago when it was widely popular and it's not so popular anymore, that kind of thing. It's just that little bit. And, and it's, it's always fascinating to me how, you know, that, that little nugget carries around in certain communities or certain companies or certain people's head, but it's not widely known. And uh, uh, that can, that can so limit uh, the transmission of good information. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, any other thoughts on how you pick out what you're going to read? Yeah, the the key is to just read a lot. You know, I'm on Hack a Day or you know listening to podcasts, checking out show notes, and I'll I'll jump around from topic to topic, and you know just through the regular course of work and Twitter, I'll come across white papers and whatnot, and just I just see what looks interesting is really how I start. Very rarely, well, not very rarely, but. More often than not, I learn something new that I then apply, you know, in some twisted way to what I'm doing, as opposed to hitting a problem and then going to find a solution. Right. So, so it's mm-hmm. sort of education by serendipity. Yes. It, it's it's hard to believe that that you can learn anything that's not in, in a precise scheduled curriculum that is learned in a, a precise <laughs> order, right? It, yes, yeah, it's amazing, you know, and I, you know, I'll, I'll listen to uh, uh, or watch a video on crystal oscillator circuits or something like that, and I don't do anything related to crystal oscillators, but they have a nice, interesting reference, you know, in the the show notes. So I'll, I'll click through, and next thing you know, I'm reading a little bit here, a little bit there, and I'll maybe learn a an interesting transistor bias technique, and then, 
you know, a week later, I'm trying to redesign one of the circuits on our eval board to test a certain parameter. And I'll say, yeah, I wonder if that thing I saw the other day fits in here. And I'll, I'll run a quick sim or rework a board to make it work and yeah, yeah. give it a shot. You know, nothing to do with crystal oscillator design, but just picking up, uh, you know, a little nugget of information here or there yeah. that might be useful. So it's kind of hard to say that somebody should follow an exact path, right? Every engineer who does this is going to have a, a different set of nuggets floating around in their brain. Exactly. <laughs> I have so many nuggets. If I could just get like a two-month sabbatical to not work on any of the things they actually pay me to do, I could probably make life way easier for everybody involved. Wow. Why? <laughs> Well, I got all these different like measurement techniques and stuff I'll read about. And yeah, I want to try them, but they may not work. They may not be better than what we're doing. And I would need a week to, you know, set it up, debug it, and actually figure out if it's good or not. And you don't always have that luxury. Yeah, well, I think you need to put that in the suggestion box. If I can find the suggestion box, I will. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I am going to suggest that, uh, We've, we've probably answered enough questions here to, uh, uh, to call it an episode and, and maybe we wrap this. Or at least we've rambled on long enough. We uh, certainly rambled on. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, maybe we wrap this one up and, uh, call it a day. All right. Sounds good. I'll talk to you guys next time. All right. Take care. Good night. Bye guys. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.